Leeds University of Edinburgh and welcome to this evening's Medical Detectives Lecture. As those of you who have been here before will know, uh, this series of lectures is inspired uh, by the work of Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. He was a graduate in medicine of this university and he would have been a student here around the time that this particular lecture theatre was built. It's the oldest lecture theatre that is still in operation in uh, the medical school. And he said that he was, in creating Sherlock Holmes, he used the techniques that he had seen in operation in the medical school in people piecing things together from a series of clues to try to un unravel the mysteries of disease. And this is what gave him the idea of creating his detective. And this evening, our speaker is Professor Aziz Sheikh, who is a professor of primary care research and development here in the university. He is a considerable uh, authority on allergic disorders, and he has given us a title which actually Conan Doyle himself could have uh, selected, the sign of three, a progress report into an investigation, on an investigation into the epidemic of itch, sneeze and wheeze. Professor Shake. Um, thanks very much, Eve, and can I also extend a very warm welcome to University of Edinburgh, and uh, um, it's, it's, it's great to see you here. So, I mean, as I was thinking of um, um, putting this lecture together, uh, I, I don't know if many of you have seen the sort of the recent series, and, uh, uh, and in this particular episode, um, Sherlock Holmes is wonderfully uh, inarticulate and incomprehensible, as is given um, the... Uh, the, the best man speech. I mean, I, I can't promise to compete with anything like that, but what I, what I will say is that, I mean, as I'm progressing, if anything doesn't make sense, this is quite a technical area, please feel free to interject. I'm very happy to have a conversation as we go along. Um, now, the subject matter um, is, um, as Eve says, is looking at this epidemic that we're currently confronting, and, uh, um, and I think it's a fascinating area, and I hope uh, um, together we'll be able to see where we've got to, and... Uh, be very open to suggestions as to how we kind of progress this investigation. So what I plan to do um, um, in, in the course of this lecture is uh, talk you through um, the nature of this epidemic um, and, um, I mean, then talk about how, I mean, whilst initially we began thinking about local allergic disorders, those affecting a particular organ system, be that the skin or the nose or the lungs, how... Um, Actually, as things have progressed, I mean, our, our, our focus has broadened. Um, think about uh, and reflect on where we've got to in sort of identifying clues. Uh, and really, I think over the last few years, there have been some very major breakthroughs. And, uh, and I think that sets the platform for hopefully um, some very important discoveries in the not-too-distant future. So I hope that's going to be of interest to you. Um, now, just to set the scene uh, before we sort of progress through this journey... I think it's important that we try and get onto the same page. And um, what I want to do is share with you um, a couple of key definitions. Because people talk about uh, being allergic to their mother-in-law, and our students talk about being allergic to their professors. Uh, what I'm talking about is something slightly different. And uh, this is, a, this is an, exa an exaggerated reaction. 
uh, to things which should be harmless uh, under normal circumstances, things that we confront in our day-to-day -day, uh, environments on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and this picture is of uh, Clemens von Pirke, um, a very famous uh, Austrian physician who actually coined this term. And, and these harmless agents, these allergens, uh, sometimes we, I mean, as allergists, we think of these as being of seasonal types. So we have uh, along the top there grass and tree pollens. We have moles, stinging insects, wasps and bees, for example. Those that are seasonal. And then on the bottom there, um, we've got uh, their uh, house dust mite. Now, these house dust mites are ubiquitous. They're absolutely everywhere. There are millions and millions of these in, these room, in, in this room, invisible to the naked eye, and it's actually the droplets of these that uh, many people are allergic to. Um, pet dander, foods, drugs. So these are more um, perennial allergens that we encounter on, on, uh, on, on, a, on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis rather than a, a seasonal basis. And what happens with individuals who are allergic, that when they come into contact with these allergens, uh, a number of symptoms can be triggered. So, for example, eczema, uh, an intense dryness of the skin, itchy, very irritating, um, allergic rhinitis, sometimes also known as hay fever, um, particularly if it occurs in the spring and the summer, but it can be a, a year-round phenomena when we call it a perennial allergic rhinitis, so uh, an inflammation of the lining of the nose, and asthma, uh, which, I mean, I think many of you will be aware of, affecting the lungs. And so when I talk about allergens, I'm talking about those um, considerations, and these are the itch, sneeze, and wheeze epidemic uh, that we currently have. Now, this is one of the most important epidemiological studies in the field of asthma and allergies ever undertaken. So this is an investigation undertaken in over 50 countries looking at um, the prevalence, so how many people, how many kids in this case, have allergic problems. Um, and it's done using the same technique, um, using the same measures in over 50 countries, uh, virtually simultaneously. And in this current, uh, in, in, in this map, what's being shown is um, areas of the world where, um, or, or the prevalence in, of two or more of these conditions coexisting um, in an individual. And this is traffic light coded, and as you can see, the red, uh, unfortunately, uh, centres very much on our little island. Um, I mean, of course, I mean, North America also gets some red, but um, red, we're talking about sort of over I mean, 10% or more of the population affected by two or more conditions. Um, and that really is a heat map that unfortunately has not improved um, um, since the time these data were collected at the time of the turn of the last century. When we go into the individual disorders there, and so this is looking at eczema, um, that dryness of the skin. Uh, and so we have countries ranked and we have the prevalence. And as you can see, very near the top there, we have the United Kingdom, where we're talking about in kids, we're talking about sort of around 20% of kids expressing uh, um, eczema, one in five kids. It's phenomenal. And then we look at allergic rhinitis. And uh, actually, we, we do a little bit better on this front. We're slightly sort of lower down in the, on that chart. And then we look at asthma, and uh, unfortunately, we are sort of completely at the top of that league table. Um, it's alarming. And look at the distribution there. Look at the spread. 
So we have um, sort of in the UK, we're talking about one in three kids um, having asthma. And then look at the bottom, sort of Indonesia, we're talking sort of 2% of kids, one in 50. Phenomenal variation that there is. Actually, the story gets a bit more complicated. So this is a piece of work that we did for the then Scottish executive, uh, um, now, of course, the Scottish government, looking at the costs of um, asthma and allergic care uh, for the NHS Scotland. And what we also did in this piece of work was we looked for variations in the UK. So, and uh, within the UK, there are variations as well. And Scotland actually tops the league uh, in, in terms of the UK. So not only I mean, uh, is the UK sort of internationally at the top of the league, but we're very much at the top of that, unfortunately. Uh, and it's costing sort of vast sums of money and obviously causing a lot of misery uh, to a lot of people. Um, uh, and this can uh, generate some uh, rather bizarre headlines sometimes. Uh, so, um, uh, I mean, it's certainly uh, interesting. So that's where we've got to. But I want to take a step back in time and... Uh, um, a lot of the first descriptions of these disorders were put together um, by UK physicians. I mean, I think the uh, UK academic community is absolutely instrumental in sort of charting this field. So this is John Bostock, uh, and the first, one of the, really the first description of hay fever in the world. And he says the following case is an example of an unusual train of symptoms. And it may perhaps be considered the more worthy of their attention uh, for its having occurred in the narrator. So about the beginning of, or middle of June in every year, the following symptoms make their appearance with greater or lesser degree of violence. A sensation of heath and fullness is experienced in the eyes um, and then extends to the nose, resulting in sneezing and violent episodes. So this is 1819, one of the first descriptions in the world of hay fever. And what you see there is what he's describing is it's a very unusual phenomenon. It's a rare disorder, um, worthy of a single case being described. And if we look at um, asthma, for example, asthma was also, I mean, around this time, a, I mean, a pretty uncommon disorder, largely thought of as being neurogenic or psychogenic in origin. So lately I met with another case. So we're talking about individual cases rather than sort of 30% of kids or 40% of kids, in which I was told that when the asthmatic was a little boy, he found in his disease a, a convenient immunity from correction. Don't scold me, he would say, if he incurred the, his father's displeasure, or, shall, or I shall have the asthma. And uh, the brilliant William Osler, I mean, again, says that there's a strong neurogenic component there. So this is in the matter of a couple of centuries, we've moved from a pretty rare disorder to a sort of a, a, um, you know, a, a global epidemic. Now, for those of you who are interested, um, um, this is a piece of, this is a work that um, I and some colleagues, Alison Worth, who's in the audience here, um, put together. So it's landmark papers in allergy. And what we've done is, over the last two centuries, um, identified the most seminal publications in the field of allergy and invited the most brilliant allergists across the planet to offer uh, sort of really pithy commentaries on why they think these papers have been absolutely instrumental. It's one of the most fun pieces of work I've ever done. It's absolutely um, brilliant contributions from scholars all over the world, and it's, uh, uh, you're, you're very welcome to browse at that. So, I mean, for those of you who are interested in that kind of historical dimension. Um, now, looking at, I mean, what's happening, I mean, a lot of this epidemic has been driven by changes 
over the last um, 50 years or so, 50, 60 years. So we're talking about the latter half of the, the, the last century. And so this is looking at asthma. And prevalence, we're talking about how many or what proportion of the population has asthma. And, and this is, I mean, a graphic looking at uh, sort of many countries. And as you can see, the graph is, I mean, invariably just pointing in the same direction. It's a, it's a steep upward incline. And, and similar work that we were involved in, uh, looking at uh, what's happening in relation to eczema and hay fever, the, the other two conditions in this triad. And again, we can see is, I mean, rapid increases taking place over relatively short periods of time. And a colleague of mine, Graham Devereux put, uh, from Aberdeen, put this together, looking at the three disorders. And this is a really interesting piece of work done in Aberdeen. And, uh, and what they did was they, they used the same design, uh, the same instruments, and, and, and tracked what was happening uh, in relation to uh, asthma and allergies um, in kids over this time period. And as you can see, with all three, where there's I mean, a very steep upward uh, incline there. Uh, so the same phenomena going on. Um, but actually, I mean, it's, it's about to get worse. And, and this is a piece of work that I was involved in uh, recently. And what we did was we identified, um, I mean, a very large subset of kids, so around 25,000 kids in, in, a, in a database, a, a large GP database from across the UK. And what we did is we tracked these kids for the first 18 years of their life, looking at uh, the diseases that they were developing, these three conditions. And what we're finding there is now it's one in two kids are developing either eczema or allergic rhinitis or asthma. So um, the epidemic, I mean, is, because this is, I mean, this is a life course kind of issue, the epidemic um, is, I mean, is already sort of incredibly bad, but with this current generation, it's about to get a lot worse, unfortunately. Right, so if that wasn't bad enough, um, um, I think it is getting more complicated. So these are sort of single organ disorders that we're talking about. And these, this is one of the first studies I ever did, um, published in 2000. And I got interested in this because my son um, had and still has anaphylaxis. Uh, anaphylaxis is, uh, is a very severe allergic disorder. It's one that's potentially sort of life-threatening. It affects many organ systems simultaneously. And it occurs in response to a variety of triggers. And um, so I got, I mean, I, my whole kind of career got, went on a detour as a result of this because we ran into all sorts of problems with sort of lack of service provision in, in, in the UK. Um, but, um, but what people were saying to me when I was speaking with allergists across the country was that actually, I mean, anaphylaxis is getting a lot worse. Now, this is a relatively rare disorder. I mean, uh, and so what we did, I mean, was looked at hospital admissions across, in this case, I mean, it was England, uh, and looked initially sort of, and, and what we were finding there were year-on-year -year increases um, for this problem. And this was really the first time it was studied. It's quite a difficult disorder to study. And one of the reasons we are able to study this in the UK is we, we have phenomenal data sets, absolutely phenomenal data sets. Um, now, when that came out, I mean, um, there, there were sort of, I mean, some people said, well, yes, makes a lot of sense. But there were also concerns raised. I mean, some people were saying, well, I mean, is this real? I mean, are these genuine increases taking place? Or are there other conditions being confused that doctors are labeling as anaphylaxis? And the concerns that they were raising were around other systemic allergic problems, very severe, but not, but not, but not so life-threatening. 
So there is, for example, um, I mean, this, this, these wheels, urticaria, intensely itchy wheels that can develop, and they can develop all over the body pretty rapidly. Hives, sometimes they're known as. Or angioedema, these swellings of the mucous membranes of the lips, or of the eyes, or of the genital regions. I mean, very rapid progression. So, I mean, sometimes can masquerade as things like anaphylaxis or food allergy. And so what we did is we did another piece of work um, where we looked, I mean, across a longer time period. So we extended this work and looked at all of these systemic allergic problems. So we took anaphylaxis and we took urticaria and angioedema and food allergy and think, well, is there a misclassification problem going on? It's a very important consideration in, allergy, in, in epidemiology that we actually sort of think critically. I mean, is this a real increase or is it being driven some kind of artefact? And as you can see, I mean, unfortunately, all these sort of lines are going in the same direction. So not, not only is anaphylaxis increasing, all these other conditions are also simultaneously increasing. So, I mean, uh, really, that, that couldn't explain it. So what we are now confronted with is that we've got sort of very rapid increases that have taken place over the last 50, 60 years in terms of the local allergic problems, the eczema, the rhinitis, the asthma, but also the systemic allergic problems. So it's the full gamut. Uh, and for the, for the systemic, we've got a shorter time window because really, I mean, these ones are more difficult to study. They need very, very large data sets. Right, can I pause and just ask if I lost anybody yet? I mean, am I being as incomprehensible as Sherlock in that brilliant sort of episode? <coughs> are we all on the same page? Yeah. yeah? Yeah, good, okay. So what do you do? I mean, this is, this is an epidemiologist's paradise. An epidemiologist, epidemiologist, we study populations. We're interested in variations. And really, this is sort of, I mean, it's, I mean, I learned this when I was reading epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene, and it's, it's a wonderful poem from Rudyard Kipling, talking about six honest serving men, they taught me all I knew, their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. And really, this is, I mean, sort of explains so much of what we try and do. We look for variations. Uh, and then we try and understand, well, what, what's sort of causing that? So we've got variations in here by time. So there are, I mean, very rapid increases. So we potentially that can give us important clues. We've got sort of vast variations by geography. And I mean, you can see, I mean, talking about 20, 30-fold variations. Um, and also person. So I mean, sort of clearly not everybody's affected. There are groups who are affected and those who are not so affected. And we can begin to investigate these uh, and think about, well, what's then sort of driving those increases and what, what, what's protecting some groups of people? Um, and, um, I mean, I had a go at sort of compiling a list a few years ago uh, of some of the hypotheses that people have generated. And, I um, mean, as you can see, there's no shortage of hypotheses there, really. I mean, it's a, a, and this is a pretty incomplete list because... Over the last uh, few years, since we sort of put that together, it's sort of um, increased dramatically. So people are not short of ideas. We're not short of work to do, really, in terms of investigating these. Uh, I mean, there's a, there, there, there's a lot to work with. I mean, part of what we're trying to do here is kind of systematically work through these. And um, we can do this in, with various study designs. So, for example, I mean, one of the study designs is we use case control studies. So we look at individuals who have disease and those who don't have disease, and we try and look, work backwards to see what sort of variations there are in risk factors, for example. A more powerful design is if we can track people prospectively. So we can take people who are disease-free and follow them up uh, and see who develops disease and who doesn't develop a disease, and then think about sort of, I mean, 
what, what risk factors may, may be sort of driving that. And so, I mean, the, the work around smoking, for example, and lung cancer has been driven by those kind of designs. And then we can try and actually think about system, uh, synthesizing that evidence. So, I mean, the, I mean, the community internationally has been working away at this. They're beavering away. I mean, it's very fertile terrain. Uh, but the list is incredibly long at the moment, and it's, uh, in many respects, getting longer. I think, though, there have been, within all that work, there have been some really fundamental change, uh, sort of game-changing insights that have developed. And I think the first one I wanted to highlight was um, um, this one by David Strachan. David, um, an Edinburgh graduate, uh, a very close colleague, a friend, a former mentor of mine. And he brought out this paper um, back in the late 80s, uh, a very short piece in the BMJ, looking at uh, um, hay fever, hygiene, and household size. And this is, I mean, a, an absolutely brilliant piece of work. And so what he did was looked at hay fever. And hay fever is the kind of archetypal allergic disorder because if you have hay fever, there's no real other explanation. It's all delivered. I mean, it's all dr driven by pollen allergy of some kind. There, there are no other sort of causal factors. With asthma, a lot of it's driven by allergy, but there can be other factors at play. So, I mean, sometimes, um, for example, I mean, um, certain drugs can be implicated sometimes. I mean, um, smoking can be implicated, for example. But with hay fever, I mean, it, it's really a, a, a very simple cause and effect relationship. It's, it's driven by a particular agent. And what he did was observe that if you were the firstborn or... Um, you were born into a family with a small, I mean, uh, relatively uh, small household size, so not many kids, you're at increased risk of developing hay fever. Really interesting I mean, insight. I mean, how on earth do you come up with those kind of hypotheses? But that's what he observed. And the only way he could begin to explain this was that what this perhaps means is that if you're an only child or there are not many kids in the family, and you'll know this from this time of year if you've got kids, I mean, We've had the viruses doing the round, hence my kind of voice is a bit hoarse, that there's not many viruses circulating in, around in those families. And so perhaps what it is, is that it's lack of exposure to viruses early on in life and other infectious agents that is somehow sort of impacting on the immune system and causing it to turn, uh, uh, turn against what should be harmful agents, these pollens and these dust in the environment. What, these, uh, what, these, um, what the immune system, our protective system, should be doing is fighting bugs, but if it doesn't have exposure to that, then what does it do, and is it turning against that? So a really interesting uh, hypothesis. And what it's le led to is, I mean, all sorts of, I mean, and this is now sort of out there in, in, in sort of populist folklore around, I mean, are we just too sort of clean, and is this what's driving it? But, what, but I think what it's really about is um, its lack of exposure <laughs> to sort of microbes, and there's some really interesting work by Erika von Mutius in particular, and Bright, who a colleague recently recruited from Finland, has been working with, with Erika, I mean, a brilliant epidemiologist, which shows that, say, for example, if you grow up on a farm, um, you're less likely to develop allergic problems. And this has been consistently replicated. I mean, there are a number of studies which have shown this, that farm exposure uh, reduces your risk of allergic disorders. There is also work, a colleague of mine, Michael Perkin, which has shown that if you grow up drinking unpasteurized milk, so milk which is rich in microbes, for example, you're less likely to develop allergic disorders. So what this is really about, it's not, it's not about sort of this, 
but it's perhaps more to do with less exposure to microbes and microbial diversity early on in life. Uh, and this is about as technical as it gets in this, in this presentation, so I, mean, I hope this doesn't really put you off. Uh, uh, so what it, what it seems to be is that very early on in life, if, if there is exposure to these um, um, sort of um, um, microbes in the environment, that can help develop the immune system. The immune system early on in life is, is, is relatively plastic, it's moldable. Um, uh, but if there isn't that kind of exposure going on, then what can happen is that uh, um, the, the immune system um, behaves in ways that are, are perhaps inappropriate. The other way that the immune system can sometimes behave inappropriately is by turning on, in, on itself, and what we call those are autoimmune disorders. So, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, where the immune system starts attacking joints, or bowel disorders, I mean, uh, the inflammatory bowel disorders, where it starts attacking the gut or the, the thyroid. Um, so, um, and there was, I mean, uh, I mean, for a time, thinking that, well, actually, I mean, the immune system may be sort of doing one or the other. Actually, now we know that there is that, that dysregulation. Actually, there's an increased risk of, uh, of, of both sort of allergic problems and autoimmune disorders. So, for example, in my family, I mean, I've got a very strong family history of allergic problems, and we have a very strong family of autoimmune disorders. So this is something that I sort of care in incredibly passionately about. Uh, for, for all sorts of reasons, not only for my patients, but for personal reasons as well. And it's around that balance, I mean, and how can we find that balance early on in life? Um, uh, and that's really where, sort of, I mean, our search is focusing attention. Another key thing that we've learnt, I mean, and, and this is in part, I mean, work that we've done and, and colleagues, I mean, a, across the UK and elsewhere, is, is in some individuals there is a very strong progression, this, this phenomenon now being described as the allergic march, so what we have is very early on in life, um, infants are developing eczema, and eczema tends to be the herald condition. It's the first insights that we have that these individuals can sometimes progress on this sort of allergic journey and then to develop sort of the organ systems and then the systemic problems that we've been describing. Um, but what this seems to be in, in some individuals, it begins incredibly early on in life. And so early on in life that, I mean, our, our focus of attention is actually turning to the in utero environment. Uh, and so thinking about the immune system begins developing in, in sort of relatively early pregnancy. And, and really, perhaps this is one of the, I mean, this is the kind of critical window that we have. Um, and the reason why this is important is that because, I mean, I know in my clinic, I have kids, I mean, who I know, um, I mean, when I, when I speak to the mums and the, when I speak to the parents, they're developing eczema, this dryness of the skin, they're saying that, well, they're noticing this within the first couple of weeks of life. I mean, this is how early this is sort of manifesting. And so, I mean, these risk factors that we're thinking about, and if we're going to intervene, it's going to be really pretty early on in life. Now, one of the areas that we've been looking at, and one of them, I mean, in that long list I was talking about, was diet, because diet has changed pretty radically. And this is a piece of work that, I mean, um, I and mean, colleagues were involved in, what we try to do is we pull together the epidemiological literature um, I mean, from across the world. Uh, it's, a, it's a technique known as systematic reviewing. And what we found that there was a very consistent message there. So um, when we talk about early on in life, uh, sort of the maternal environment, I mean, the first uh, sort of few weeks or months of the, I mean, an infant's life, uh, and there were certain dietary patterns that were sort of particularly important. Uh, and really, the, the clearest signals were around lack of, perhaps, uh, vitamin D in the diet. And so, 
mean, th this may have some sort of credibility. We're a sort of a northern environment, and I, I mean, I, I mean that maybe that sort of newspaper has got some credibility in that respect in, the, in terms of that hypothesis it's raising. Another one was around vitamin E in the diet. Um, so, I mean, if you're deficient in that, I mean, it was a pretty clear signal that that was problematic. And also this issue about the, the Mediterranean diet. And, uh, and what we see is in Mediterranean countries, there's relatively um, sort of a, a low risk of these allergic problems. And, I mean, vitamin D and vitamin E sort of rich foods are, are sort of, um, I mean, core components of this Mediterranean diet. So Mediterranean diet is what we would generally think about as a, as a healthy diet. And we, I mean, in very many ways, have moved away from that. So it's I mean, like cereals and grains on a daily basis. It's fruits and vegetables, which are the core. And those things which are now sort of red traffic light labelled in our supermarkets, thankfully the chocolates and the cookies and I mean, all those kind of things, red meat being a relatively infrequent component of the diet. And clearly our diets have changed very radically. And, and also, I mean, sort of, if you look at that sort of farming communities, I mean, I mean this is very much in keeping with that. And so what's happening now is that there are a series of, um, we're moving beyond sort of investigational studies to beginning planning um, interventional studies for the first time where we can intervene. So there are colleagues of mine in Boston, for example, who are doing vitamin D trials. Um, um, Graham Devereaux in uh, Aberdeen is launching a vitamin E study uh, trial where we're actually thinking about intervening early on in life. We've been working with colleagues here uh, Harriet Watt uh, around a Mediterranean diet. We're just sort of completing the pilot phase of that work. So the work is progressing from sort of ideas and where we've been able to find consistent messages across the literature to thinking about sort of interventional work and how we might be able to intervene in terms of populations. I think some other game-changing insights is, uh, I mean, a, a really interesting piece of work uh, from uh, Dundee, uh, Owen McLean and colleagues, and, and this really hit the headlines a few years ago. And what they found was that uh, if you're deficient in a certain gene, and there is a very strong genetic sort of component uh, to this, and this is the phalagrin gene, which is in the superficial layer of the skin. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong uh, protective component there in the outer layer of the skin. And if you're deficient in this, what happens is that... Um, um, that the skin is uh, prone to a lot more water loss. Uh, so the, the dryness that, I mean, is found, and this was the first kind of major genetic signal that was found uh, in relation to um, uh, eczema. So what happens is that these individuals who are genetically deficient in, in, will lose a lot of water. They'll be prone uh, to, to dryness of the skin. But not only that, is that the normal barrier protection of the skin, the barrier function of the skin, is impaired. So it's potentially sort of permeable to all sorts of agents that shouldn't be getting through. Now, um, this, this, this problem is present in about 10% of individuals. And, uh, and what it is, is if you look over your, what's your thena eminence, I mean, this is where your thumb is. Uh, the marker of this uh, is that there's, there's, there's excessive creasing. So what I'd like you to do is just compare the creasing that you've got with your neighbour, really. And, and look, I mean, have you got disproportionate sort of creasing there. And if you have, I mean, as you can see in the, uh, the pictures there, and I mean, if you want to have a look at mine afterwards, you're, you're more than welcome to. And if you have that, you're probably deficient in this uh, phalagrin gene. So what we have is, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I mean this is present in something like 10% of the population, and we have a pretty clear marker, really. And so now there is work going on thinking about identifying these individuals at birth 
And so, I mean, a, I mean, a pilot trial has just concluded. Uh, so we're, we're in these pilot trial phases, really, where early on, I mean, these kids are being identified, and right from birth, it's a simple sort of replacement function. So uh, excessive kind of lubrication, so petroleum jelly, the oils, the, the creams, etc., to try and sort of replenish that, that barrier function early on in life. What we also find with these kids, I mean, and, and those of you who've got eczema or have had uh, family members with eczema, you'll know that, uh, that, that going in the bath is a real disaster because if you use soap, what you're doing is, I mean, the, the, the kind of protective function that you've got, those oils that are being secreted, what you're doing is that the soap removes that and so individuals will come out of the bath sort of uh, feeling even more itchy because what you're doing is you're, you're sort of removing that barrier. So we can identify these individuals pretty early on uh, and there are potentially sort of, I mean, some real uh, important interventions that we can do to try and look at this. So what we did is we, we tried to pull together some of this evidence. And this is a technique known as meta-analysis. So what it is is identifying individual studies in the literature uh, and then trying to identify, well, I mean, can we pull that evidence and see if there's a signal? And what we see here, I mean, I, I mean, I mean each, each sort of uh, box there is an individual study. And, and what we, we see here is that if, if, you're, if you're deficient in this, not only are you at increased risk of eczema, but you're also at increased risk of asthma and also, I mean, actually of uh, allergic rhinitis. Now, with that, I mean, um, uh, I mean some, some other sort of studies related to this, this was, a, I mean, a really interesting piece of work using a, a cohort from Bristol. Uh, and these are kids who've been identified at birth and they've been tracked now uh, uh, it's the, uh, for, for about sort of 20 years or so. And what, what was found in these um, kids was that... Uh, um, if they were um, exposed to um, nut and peanut containing, particularly peanut containing oils early on in life. So if these were being used sort of, I mean, either mothers were using them to protect their nipples when breastfeeding or, or being applied to the skin of kids, these kids were at increased risk of developing allergic problems. So the skin exposure, perhaps uh, in those who are sort of genetically uh, deficient in these normal barrier function uh, is resulting in an increased risk of allergic problems. And, and, and actually, there's a very, very strong uh, signal there. And, and subsequent work that's been done, uh, some of this being done in particularly sort of reared rats who are, who are, who are deficient for this gene, shows that if they are then exposed to, to this um, peanut-containing oils, for example, they're at massively increased risk of developing allergic problems. I think there's another really interesting piece of work that's been done, and this has been done using uh, Jewish, uh, done uh, studied in Jewish children. So comparing Jewish children raised in Israel and Jewish children raised uh, in, in North London. So these are uh, children with the kind of same genetic stock. Uh, and um, what they find, and what the researchers that there have found is that um, if you are raised in London, you are at massively increased risk of developing peanut allergy. Uh, when compared with the, the, the same kind of genetic stock children uh, raised in Israel. And one of the kind of key determinants or the key, key explanatory variables seems to be that uh, children raised uh, in, in, in North London are exposed to peanuts periodically. We, we kind of tend to sort of binge on these at sort of Easter and Christmas. I mean, so they're sort of back in the supermarkets at the moment. Whereas what happens um, in kids in Israel is, particularly through Bamba, it's part of the staple diet. And, and if you look in parts of the world where peanut is sort of regularly consumed, 
Say, for example, in China, well, peanut allergy is next to unheard of there. So it's perhaps something to do with the fact that, I mean, early on in life, we're, we're not exposing um, in our kids to um, in these, these foods. Um, and in part, this was because this was government advice, really. It was, I mean, if you're at high risk of allergic problems, then don't exp expose kids to sort of um, these allergenic foods. I mean, that, that has now been reversed to a large extent. Uh, so it's, it's actually sort of a, a pretty complex picture, but what it's all pointing to is that sort of early life, that, that is, is a critical time period, uh, and diet seems to be an incredibly important time, win time window. And so now there are also trials going on, sort of uh, randomizing children early on in life to sort of regular peanut exposure to see whether that can protect versus sort of peanut avoidance measures. So I think... Um, this is a sort of a, a, a picture which tries to pull all of this together uh, in, in terms of sort of that early life environment is incredibly important. Uh, and what seems to be particularly important there is getting the maternal diet right. And obviously sort of avoiding other risk factors like uh, smoking, for example, which we also know increases the risk. And then early on in life, thinking about ways of protecting sort of genetically at-risk kids, uh, particularly through sort of replacing barrier function and, um, uh, uh, and also sort of um, um, uh, preventing uh, or sort of replacing barrier function and, uh, and avoiding exposure to um, sort of allergens through the skin route, but uh, presenting the, these to them through the oral route. And that, that's because, I mean, our gut are, is, the, is the most important immunological system that we have. It's, it's absolutely enormous, and it's absolutely sort of fundamental to the development of, of the immune system. So I think, I mean, um, we've come a heck of a long way and, and we're at this phase now where, I mean, sort of lots of ideas, lots of hypotheses which have been investigated in many parts of the world, we're beginning to understand which of those hypotheses really matter uh, and we're getting some very clear signals and we're now in this phase where we're actually beginning to test those hypotheses with formal investigations where we're randomising mothers or we're randomising children. But that is, um, I mean, it still leaves us in a bit of a quandary because, I mean, this is a piece I wrote in the BMJ. I mean, this is a piece for practitioners around allergy prevention and recently brought out these guidelines with the European uh, Allergy Academy thinking about allergy prevention in this context here. And at the moment, if somebody comes in to me and says, well, my, my child's got allergic problems and I'm pregnant, well, what can I advise? And at the moment, we're still at the phase when we, we have sort of next to nothing that we can offer. Uh, because there are, I mean, we're just beginning those um, you know, sort of experimental studies. And so what I want to do in this last section is just think about what we need going forward. So what we need are um, sort of, I mean, there are a number of randomized controls, trials that we now need to launch. Them. And, and these randomized controlled trials need to be very big studies because, um, uh, I mean, what we're talking about is sort of um, tracking individuals over long periods of time. And that is difficult because, I mean, tracking individuals, we, we can see, talking about, I mean, these diseases developing up to the age of 18 years, for example. So launching a study, I mean, where you follow individuals who are randomizing for long periods of time is incredibly time-consuming. It's incredibly expensive uh, to do. And so what we need to do is, uh, I mean, I think play... Uh, uh, this game, I mean, I think uh, perhaps a lot more intelligently than we've been doing hitherto. And I think uh, in many ways in the UK, and in particular in Scotland, we're in, we have some unique platforms that can support us in that endeavour. So the thing that we have here, which is the envy of the world, is we have a cradle-to-grave electronic health record system. 
And also in, in Scotland, we have what's known as the CAI, or the Community Health Index Number. So every time you pick up a script from your GP, for example, uh, or, or you get an outpatient letter, there is on there a unique identifier. And what that allows us to do is to begin to link up data sets in pretty unique ways. And there's nowhere really else in the world, or very few places in the world, that can, uh, uh, can do that. And so, for example, these are some of the data sets that we've got. So we can look at maternity records, we can look at birth records, we can look at GP records, we can look at hospitalization records, all the way through to death. And we can begin to construct sort of a picture of what's going on throughout the life course using routine records. So reducing the burden on patients, reducing the burden on carers, reducing the burden on busy professionals and begin sort of uh, really thinking about these issues. And, uh, and within these data sets, I mean, these are some of the kind of things that we're beginning to be able to code. I mean, we're very much at the beginning of this journey. So looking at symptoms or sort of patient-generated records, all sorts of things that we can potentially begin to code and begin to utilise, really. So some very, very interesting and important platforms beginning to be developed, uh, it, it, particularly in Scotland. I and mean, the rest of the world is, is looking at Scotland in this respect. I think it's very, very exciting. And so one of the things that we're, I mean, at the moment setting up is the FAR Institute, is named after the British demographer, so interested in birth and death statistics, William Farr, and is to use our data, the public data, uh, for the betterment of, of sort of uh, uh, the Scottish population and the UK population. And this is, uh, um, this is um, in the, the image at the bottom is of Biaquarter out of Little France. I mean, it's a site that we're just setting up. It's a state-of-the-art site for secure data linkage to do this in the most safe way possible to allow us to sort of begin to exploit these data sets as we launch these big studies going forward in, in trying to do these in efficient ways. And just to give you an idea, I mean, if, say, for example, if I want to do a study of 100,000 kids and track them for 18 years, because these are some of the kind of numbers that we need, we're talking about an individual study costing of the order of probably of 20, 30, 40 million pounds if we use our kind of traditional mechanism. That's how expensive these studies are. But we have the, the opportunity to do it at a fraction of the cost, potentially a tenth of the cost, maybe. I think the other sort of really important infrastructure that we're developing is, uh, is the Asthma UK Centre for Applied Research. I mean, so we're, we're just sort of at very early stages of doing this. And, uh, and the key thing is that what we've done is we've pulled together sort of the biggest names in asthma research from across the UK to say... Like try and focus our efforts on some of these considerations. Uh, and this is really sort of a, a partnership with 13 universities because what we also need to do, I think, much better in the UK is act uh, and work collaboratively. I mean, I, I think collaboration is, uh, I mean, offers us phenomenal opportunities and our patients and I think the public, uh, our policymakers expect this. So I think, I mean, these are potential synergies, I think very, very important synergies, as we think about launching these big randomised controlled trials to see if we can actually progress this in, in, in new ways. Uh, uh, so this is a very, very exciting phase. It's a heck of a lot of work. We're trying to bang heads together that have never previously worked together. Um, but I think, I mean, I, I think the, the, the prize at the end of it is, is phenomenal. Um, so I hope I've, I mean, uh, I, I mean I, I've given you a sort of a taste or a feel as to where we've got to. Now, clearly, this is an unfinished story, uh, and uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I hope very much that it's going to be a sort of a happy ending. But just uh, in summary, what I've talked about is that there is a, I mean, a, a real epidemic. The UK is at the epicentre of that, and I mean, that I mean, is disastrous in many respects. 
it also raises phenomenal opportunities for us to think about, well, what's driving that? And I think we've been making very, very considerable progress. I think we, under we understand now the time period that matters. We've got a pretty good idea of the risk factors that matter. The proof of the pudding is actually when we intervene, and we intervene in intelligent kind of ways on the back of all of that evidence, and see, well, actually, do those hypotheses stand up? Do these stand up to the kind of scrutiny of formal randomization? We need to do big studies going forward. We need to be adventurous. We need to be bold. Uh, and that, I mean, is going to be... I mean, I, I think that setting up the platforms that we're trying to do to enable us to do this, I mean, uh, that's, that's very much been the focus of my efforts together with colleagues. I mean, some of them are in this room uh, going forward. I mean, uh, 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 and now, I mean, I think, uh, I think we are incredibly well poised to, to, to launch these big studies uh, going forward. So, I mean, I very much hope that, uh, uh, that the UK is well-placed to, to kind of respond to this epidemic that we're dealing with. This is what, I mean, um, sort, of, sort of Arthur Conan Doyle's model was. I mean, very much that kind of lone scholar. I mean, and he's a brilliant scholar, really. I mean, I think going forward, this is uh, the, the, the future. I mean, I think we mean many Sherlock Holmes working in synergy. I mean, some of those are clearly more dysfunctional than others. Uh, I mean, perhaps we get more dysfunctional as we get older, but I think that's the way when we need to be inspiring sort of the next generation. And I think part of what we're trying to do is bring on the next generation of sort of brilliant young minds to engage in this space because there's, there's some real work to be done. What I'd like to do is just finally is acknowledge people. So there are various funders uh, who've supported this work and, and clearly without their effort we couldn't do this. Uh, I think that, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of incredibly fortunate, got one wonderful colleagues number of them in this room, and, uh, and I think in particular, I mean, the person who keeps me in check and saying is uh, Anna, my PA, and, and anybody who sort of uh, knows about them, I mean, what she has to deal with, I mean, will know that, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of insanity, really. I mean, I don't know if you've done the insanity kind of DVDs. I mean, uh, anybody in sort of insanity fitness, I mean, it's really worth doing if you get the chance. But it's insanity in, in, in the office, and she keeps things in check. Uh, and we work with, I mean, I have a privilege of working with absolutely wonderful people. Uh, I mean, across the country and across the world. And lastly, I mean, I think it's, it's people like yourselves who come out and support and, and are supporting because, I mean, um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to do this for public good and, uh, and we're completely dependent, really, on sort of the public getting behind us and, and I think very much they do. So I hope that's been of uh, some interest uh, to you and uh, very, very happy to take sort of comments, questions. And if you've got more hypotheses, uh, please feel free to put them in the mix. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. fascinating talk and I certainly enjoyed it very much and I didn't hear a pin drop so I think everyone must have as well. Perhaps you might like to take one or two questions sure. here and then when we set uh, pop outside for a coffee other people can come and ask sure. you Absolutely. about you know, particular things they might want to ask. Have you sure. got any questions at the moment? Stunned into silence. Ah, yes indeed sir. Yeah, so maybe if I can just repeat that for those who kind of subsequently listen. So this is for people who've got sort of established disease and, uh, I mean, at the moment there's a kind of a limited repertoire of interventions available. Uh, I hope that captured the question adequately. 
Yeah, so with the Asthma UK, I mean, so I mean, the, the, the thrust of this presentation has been very much thinking about sort of that prevention, that kind of holy grail, that, that, that kind of I mean, I mean, phenomenal prize. But there are many of us, I mean, who are stuck with this or, or on, a, on a day, and I carry my inhaler around because I mean, I've had one of these dreaded bugs recently as well, unfortunately. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, th th that is a reality. And, and part of what we're trying to do with the Asthma UK Centre is also think about, I mean, just come from a meeting where we're talking about, I mean, earlier detection of exacerbations. So can we sort of develop uh, sort of new informatics tools, for example, to allow much better recognition early on uh, of exacerbation than they intervene sort of uh, much earlier on? I mean, there are other things being pursued, for example, and, I mean, uh, I mean actually sort of disease modifying. So perhaps some which can actually sort of call, uh, change, begin to change the trajectory. Some quite interesting work around thermoplasty, bronchial thermoplasty. So actually sort of intervening, for example, and, uh, and opening up the airways and trying to do that in a more permanent way. Uh, and, and very much, I mean, the thrust of the Asthma UK Centre that we've launched is, is, is thinking about sort of trying to reduce morbidity in particular, sort of trying to diminish the number of hospitalisations because there are something like 70,000, 80,000 hospitalisations for asthma. I'm sure, I mean, I, I think we focus efforts on this issue, we can dramatically reduce that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean it's not to the exclusion of that at, at all. Yeah, so, I mean, th what it seems to be is that um, basically, I mean, most of this has historically taken place in what's known as westernised countries, so economically developed countries. Um, sort of low- and middle-income countries were relatively spared. That is changing as, uh, as they, too, be sort of become um, westernised. I, I think what we have, uh, perhaps, is that uh, we have sort of... Uh, I mean, a number of these things have come together. So historically, we've had very sort of high prevalences of smoking in the UK, for example. I mean, I, I think our diets in very many respects leave, a, uh, I mean, a lot to desire for. And, and, and clearly we were one of the first societies in the world to undergo rapid sort of urbanisation. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors that have uh, conspired in that respect. But, but if we look at sort of other English-speaking countries in particular, I mean, um, so Australia, New Zealand, sort of parts of North America, it's actually sort of broadly comparable prevalences, unfortunately. the rest of the questions outside. Thank you very much indeed, Bunsmore. I thought that was really fascinating. This production is brought to you by